and I'm going to give you an introduction to a ritual that you've been participating in your whole life. Okay, so that's not exactly the frame that I'm trying to take, but when I say an introduction, refresher, sort of eye-opener, what I'm trying to do is help us see both the texts with which we're most familiar and also the rituals with which we're most familiar as though for the first time. And, uh, and there is a fair bit of, I'm, I'm not gonna make any apologies for this, there's a fair bit of sort of um, myth-busting or clarifying that is really important on the front end, otherwise subsequent conversations just don't make a great deal of sense. So, um, we'll, 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 we'll bust the biggest myth first. Um, uh, this is not gonna be a six-week course on the rapture. <laughs> or anything like that, um, most of uh, what we would understand to be sort of popular representations of the book of Revelation, what this is really all about, what, oh, um, sort of where energy and time and stuff should go, all of that, um, is deeply informed by a very particular kind of evangelical Protestantism. And nobody, well, we'll use the rapture as a great example here. Nobody before 1850 had ever heard of the rapture. Nobody ever thought that's what was going on. Also, the rapture is not really about the book of Revelation. It's about the uh, first letter to the Thessalonians. So, like, that, that's not what we're doing. We can ask questions about it. We can talk about it. But, like, that's not what this is. So, so before we hit the book of Revelation proper, just the Bible in general, I said some things this weekend. Many of you were here. What kind of things struck you about what I said about the Bible this weekend? It's a very mean thing for the teacher to do, isn't it? <laughs> Some are put on a shelf and just kind of decorative. Others are well-worn and, and earmarked. Excellent, excellent, Connie. So what I did, for those that weren't here, was I pulled out two Bibles. One was like the family Bible that you keep on the shelf, the one that has the sacramental records and all that kind of stuff in it, the fancy Bible. The other was one that I've used regularly for, for study and, and preaching for a lot of years, okay? Um, the idea is this, Catholics often get the reputation for only having the family Bible on the shelf. It exists, but it exists up here where nobody quite reaches it, nobody ever pulls it down to read it, nobody ever does anything. And the claim that I made in the homily, I'm not really all that concerned about like where this stuff goes in your house. That was for exemplary purposes, right? But the idea is that these are two attitudes in the church, two dispositions toward the scripture that are not in competition with each other. This should not be an either-or proposition. So keeping a Bible that is nice, that is leather-bound, or has gilded pages, or looks nicer than most of the other books in your house, that doesn't look like something you could pick up at the grocery store or the airport, that says this book is important. And when we put it in a prominent place in our home, uh, on a shelf, in a secretary or dresser or display or something, or on like a home altar, uh, that tells everybody visually, without having to say any words at all, this is an important book. This book has a private place in our home. So, so, that, so that is a good thing to do. But the critique is sound. If it only ever sits there and nobody ever opens it up, it's not doing anyone any good. So it is also important to have a copy of the scriptures that you can dog ear and write notes in and, and, and be really and deeply engaged in. Sometimes people get really worried about being sacrilegious with physical copies of the text. Um, I know uh, uh, in seminary, this is always a thing that we have to kind of break the boys of, typically in the first semester, but like they're, they're afraid to make notes in their Bible because they feel like it would be disrespectful to the text. 
people have been making notes in the Bible since before there was a Bible. <laughs> like this, and, 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 and in history, this is how most people interacted with text. Was you would underline or make a star or write a question if you didn't understand what the text was saying. And that question's there so that later on, when you go back to your teacher, you're able to say, well, what about verse 13? It says here that that kind of thing. So now, is it possible to be disrespectful to the scriptures? Of course it is. Um, I'm not worried about that with any of you. So, like, so, so that's, not, that's not the concern. But that was the visual that I used, Connie. You're absolutely right. And I, and I would say, so what we're doing here, this, the, today, this, this session, right, these sessions, this is more uh, working Bible than uh, shelf Bible. <laughs> but both are still important. Both are still important. What else struck you, either about what I said or just in general? What strikes you about the Bible in the church? Well, I think once you just read it more. So it's got to be in you, right? Like that, and that really was the point of Sunday, was it's the Bible exists outside of us. Our goal is to get it inside of us, in our heads, in our hearts, and ultimately down in our guts, right? I remember... Um, when I first entered religious life, I'd been saying the office as a seminarian for several years, but it wasn't until singing the Psalms every day, singing the Psalms five times a day, every day, for like 20 years, that, that, I, that I, I, I finally just began to get how it was possible for the church fathers, for the great theologians like Augustine and Aquinas, even for the reformers like Luther and Calvin, to quote the Bible not the way we do. So, 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 so the way uh, people tend to quote the Bible today, this is especially true of a certain kind of Protestant, but not limited to it. We've got Catholics that do this too. Well, as we see in John 17, 4, that's not the way any of the church fathers quote the scripture. It's more like they're just talking, and then all of a sudden, scripture comes out of their mouth. Because those words have become their words. And so, like, in the monastery, what we would do, we, 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 you'd begin to play games with it, right? So you'd go to sit down, and very, sit at my right, your clothes I'll put beneath your feet. Um, or if we had a professor that we really disliked, we'd say, oh, Father Hiley, I hate him with a deadly hate, right? But you, you, you try and use the, the, the words of the scripture to communicate what you were actually feeling in the present moment, not necessarily about the stuff in the book, but about stuff, you know, obviously not, not, not pertaining to the book. Where, what does the word Bible mean? Anybody know? Book. book, exactly, right? So, so in Spanish, right, a biblioteca is a library. It literally just means book place, okay? So, so, so the Bible is literally the book. That's its purpose. And this is book in the, uh, in the very literal sense, by which I mean um, double-sided pages or parchment that are bound together, or what is technically called a codex. So, 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 so a book the way we would recognize it today, like this, where you've got pages that are bound and you've got writing on both sides, and, and, and they're bound on one side to hold it together, usually between some kind of covering. Um, that's really an invention of the church. So the first books that we would recognize that we have are the epistles of St. Paul. 
Uh, and it was because it was a faster, safer, and easier way to, to, uh, to send a book. The problem is, what word are you going to use for stuff? But to send the communication across the empire. It's a lot easier to ship something like this, especially like in a saddlebag, than a scroll. Especially a scroll that's long enough, it would stretch the whole length of the room, right? And so, so, so this, is, this was a major technological development. We don't know who's exactly responsible for it. And it may not be that it was some pious Christian in Rome that like, first bound it. Even the pagan guy down the street, we stole the idea, but we're the ones that marketed it and took. Um, uh, but, but, you know, even in the scriptures, right, when Jesus reads, it's always from a scroll. And they handed him the scroll of the law, right? It's not a book because they didn't have hard or paper-bound copies of the Torah yet. They didn't exist. So, so the Bible comes to mean book, the book, both in the sense of, like, the most important book or the one that we're all referencing without saying, kind of like when you call somebody the man. We all know who the man is, right? You know what the book is. But it also means, like, literally, the book. And having books like this very, very early on, like, by the second century, becomes... Um, typical and initially distinguishing of Christians um, I don't want to say as opposed to in distinction from both the Jews who maintain the use of the scroll. Jews were very late adopters of texts like this um, and, uh, and the pagans um, uh, uh, the, the pagans certainly did right. Um, they didn't always favor scrolls. They often favored a a method of uh, paper binding that we don't so much see today, but that uh, is basically like a, like a legal pad. So it goes like this. But, but because of the way those were bound, you could only write on one side. And that's the real technological development of the codex, is that you can have writing on both sides. The reason that was important... Can I do this? Yeah, I can a little bit. To do a little strip tease here. Um, so the reason that's important is because for... Not the area right around the Mediterranean, but by the time we get to Rome, um, what we're writing on is not paper. It's skin. And skin, part of the uh, vellum, is very expensive and hard to make and hard to treat. But the main thing is, on, uh, on animal skin, calf skin, usually, or sheep, uh, you've got a hairy side, the outside, which would be the outside of the skin, like on us, and then, right, if you were to flay the outside of my arm, it'd be kind of gross. But the inside of that, there's no hair on it. It's smooth, right? Well, the problem with binding, uh, the problem with writing on both sides of the page is the hairy side of the skin, you can get the hair off. But, you know, mares existed forever, it just had different names. You can get the hair off of it, but the skin's always rougher because the pores that held the skin stay. And so what you can't do, if you're going to make a book that you expect to last, is write on a smooth-sided page and write on a rough-sided page and put them together. Because the rough side will rub the ink off of the smooth side. So this is a way that uh, archivists, um, when they're looking at ancient texts, look to see whether a page is missing or whether the bookbinder knew what he was doing. Because this was, they figured this out by the, the late third, early fourth century. You can't put pages together like that. And we have books that like half the pages are gone. 
they're there, but you can't read them anymore because over time, the, 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 rough wore, wore, the rough wore away the ink. Okay? So the Bible, some this is like physical, but I think it's important to have this in our head to affect your imagination a little bit. So the Bible as a, as a book like this um, really doesn't come into existence in the way that we think of it until the printing press. There are ancient copies of codices, codexes, that have all of the books that we would think of in the Bible that exist, but they're in multiple volumes. So like the Codex Sinaiticus, which is the oldest complete copy of the Bible that we have, dates to the early 4th century. It's in the Vatican. I've touched it, like I've seen the thing. So it's, it's a real object. It's called the Codex Sinaiticus because it's from Mount Sinai. So it's from St. Catherine's Monastery in Mount Sinai. Um, it is like 17 volumes. So it's, it's one book, but it takes up like two and a half shelves. And it's because this stuff is put together. And like any book, even today, um, the bigger the book is, the thicker the book is, the harder it is to buy. And, and the less likely it is to stay together, right? And so, you know, think like your high school literature anthology or something like that, like a real big thing. Well, you, you, they're not very durable. And so, so at the beginning, what they would do is they would make smaller, just single volume sections. So you might have a, think of this the way that, a book in this sense, that's just the Gospel of Mark. Or a book in this sense, that's just the epistles of Paul. Or just the epistles of John. Or just the book of Revelation. You see how this is kind of working out? Okay. So the Bible itself, like the thing that we now call the Bible, um, is uh, the thing that we now call the Bible is really an, anth- an anthology. So it's, uh, it, and again, think like high school lit. So it's a compilation uh, composed by multiple authors over a long period of time. So now when we make anthologies today, there's usually something thematic that sort of holds it together, or something like that, right? Um, what makes the Bible sort of a unitary thing is these are the, the sacred texts initially of the Jewish community and then later of the Christian community. And we'll talk about how the, the Jewish and, and Christian portions kind of came together there. Um, the Bible itself, the texts that make up the Bible that we have now, uh, were written over a period of between 800 and 1,000 years, so a really long period of time, by at least three dozen people, probably closer to 50. It's a little bit difficult to tell, absolutely, for all kinds of reasons that will probably become clear in the course of our study. But so, so, so think about it this way. The Bible is an anthology written over the course of 1,000 years by about 50 people. That makes trying to read a text like this very challenging. I can't think of another book that I own like this. I mean, maybe like a world lit anthology or something like that, but like I, I can't think of another just ordinary book, and I certainly can't think of another book from the ancient world that operates like that. That makes sort of um, the work of interpreting the text and figuring out what the text means for us today especially challenging. So there are two kind of... Um, roads we, we want to kind of hoe on this score. So the first one is we don't want to make this so arcane a book that nobody can ever read it. So there is a, there's, there's a version of sort of Bible scholarship that basically says 
unless you unless you're fluent, which nobody is, unless you're fluent in ancient Greek, ancient Hebrew, Aramaic, and Syriac, you can't possibly understand what's going on in here. That's not true. That there's there's not a good reason to think that's true. The people that wrote the books didn't think that was true. So that can't possibly be the case. There's another version that's equally problematic, but sort of hopelessly naive, which is, well, if this is all somehow or other inspired by God, I should just be able to pick it up and immediately intuit exactly what this means. Well, that has created all kinds of other equally difficult uh, uh, problems. So it's not, again, this is not intended to be an either or sort of a proposition. This is, the Bible is in some ways the first Catholic old man. That was the other big point that I was trying to, to hit on Sunday, is that it's very, very important for the church that her members uh, understand that when we talk about the Bible being the inspired word of God, we really do mean it. We're not playing or faking or something, but we don't believe in divine dictation theory, which is the technical name for the way Muslims imagine the Quran came to be and is the way that many, certainly not all, but many um, especially fundamentalist-type Protestant Christians imagine the composition of the Bible. So there, there are Protestants that will just straight up tell you the Bible fell out of heaven sometime in the first century, whole and entire, in the King James translation. And, um, and so it's the rule of faith for everything. This is colossally stupid. I honestly don't, I don't know how to argue with something like that. That's such a dumb idea, I don't know how to respond. Um, if you know anybody like that, we can kind of brainstorm how to respond. But like that, that is, that is catastrophically stupid. The, 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 the claim is something much more like this. Divine inspiration is a particular act of the divine will. So God does a special thing that's distinct from the ordinary course of events. And he does it in a person who writes and that person writes using all of the natural skills that they already possess. So it's not an illiterate person that gets made to do this. It's a person who already knows how to read and write. And they take the natural skills that they already have in reading and writing, first practically, like with a pen and their fingers, and then more um, abstractly, in their minds, the capacity that they have in the language that they know and the language that they're writing in, the grammatical skill or lack thereof that they possess, the stylistic preferences, the ability in terms of, what's it? Genre. Genre, genre, exactly, absolutely. Which is why some people write some things and other people don't write other things. The guy that wrote the book of Leviticus was not a poet, just wasn't. Whoever wrote the Song of Songs probably wasn't a great legal scholar. They're, they're different things and they serve different functions. And so, so what God does is he takes the natural talent that the sacred author possesses and he inspires them with the Holy Spirit to ensure this is the key point. This is, this is the way the church winds up defining the written portion of Revelation. To ensure that what is in the sacred text, in its original language, is what God intended. No more, no less. So I'll give you just one second. So what we cannot do, we cannot do, which is what a lot of contemporary biblical scholars want to do, is sift through the text, find the bits we like, or cohere with where we are right now, circle those, and then scratch out the rest. That's not open, like that, that's outside the parameters of what not just Catholics, but Catholics, Orthodox, and certainly historical Protestants think is, uh, is, 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 is 
the right way to read the Bible or is just what we think the Bible is? All right, Barry, what did, what did you have? I'm sorry about that. At that time, wasn't the elders of the church called together in the year 325 with the Council of Nicaea to put those books together? We're going to come back to that. That's a good question, but let me get a few more kind of general principles. It's good. Okay, so, because the, comp- the compilation is different than composition. Composition are the individual books. Compilation is all the books together. So what I'm saying right now pertains to the production of the individual books, okay? Um, the Jews did not believe in dictation theory either, at least not the way that is, is proposed now. Uh, th- there's no way to get around this. I'm trying to dance around something, which is the reason I'm not doing very well. Okay, we're going to step off the Christian thing for a minute. <laughs> Here is how classical Islam proposes the Quran came to be. The prophet Muhammad, who in this version of the story is illiterate, so he's in a, at least a semi-illiterate peasant. He certainly doesn't read and write the way that you and I do. He's capable of like uh, accounting letters, but he's not, uh, he's not a scholar. The prophet Muhammad receives a revelation from the archangel Gabriel, who literally dictates in Arabic the words that make up what is now the Quran. If you've never read the Quran, it's worth doing, but the Quran is not the life story of the prophet Muhammad. It's a a compilation of a a series of what are mostly sermons with a few stories interspersed and what what would be kind of like biblical commentary because they're referencing events mostly from the Old Testament and a few from the New. Um, but But the clear claim, the evident claim, in fact, this is supposed to be like internally in classical Islam, this is the proof of revelation, is that a man who couldn't read and write was made to write the most beautiful book in the history of the world. That's the, that, 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 that's, that's the claim of historic Islam. And so it, 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 it is as though God said through the angel, Muhammad, write. And Muhammad takes his pen. Yes, Gabriel. Um, in the name of Allah, the most high, the most merciful. And, and that's what he did, and then he just kept doing it. Yeah, Mark. This is like splitting hairs thing. That's okay. I believe he didn't he dictate it to like his wife and cousin. His wife know. and his first cousin. So they put it together, they, and they at, at several points had more than one scribe working at the same time. You're right, but 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 the point is like it's it's literally supposed to be sort of words from God's mouth to the people that are writing it down. Um, that's. That's specifically and directly from the beginning, not what we've said. And there's a theological point that's at stake here that's way beyond the Bible. If God simply utilizes human agents like puppets, then your will is no longer involved in the act of production. So that that, uh, the Apostle John, presuming he's the one who wrote the gospel that has his name, the Apostle John didn't really write the gospel that has his name. God wrote it. John just was there. And we put his name on it so we can tell the difference between it and the other books. That's not what we're saying. And it's very important that it's not what we're saying because it helps us understand the individual books. So the gospel of John, the epistles of John, and the book of Revelation, whether they were written by the same person or not, which is a real question, are written in a style and with a vocabulary that is much higher than all the rest of the New Testament. 
it's, it, the grammar is more complicated. Um, uh, the, 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 the person who wrote it would appear, based on the text, to be better educated. It's a, it's a different kind of, it's a different genre of text than, than the other stuff in the New Testament. The Gospel of Mark, by way of contrast, appears to be written by somebody who probably didn't have more than like a fifth grade education. Almost the entire book is written in the present tense. So there's very, very little like back and forth. And that may well have to do with the fact that the person who was writing it was writing in a second language because the book was written in Greek, but it was almost certainly written by people who initially spoke Aramaic. So it would be like me trying to write a book in Spanish. Uh, like I could do it, but it's not gonna sound real pretty, right? You can even catch bits of this in English, uh, and you'll catch it this year because we're reading from Mark this year, right? And immediately, and immediately, and immediately. Like he, he says immediately, I think 150 times or something in, in, in the course of like a 50-page book. I, like, he says immediately a lot. Well, a more uh, accomplished writer knows that's not a pretty way to write. We learn not to do that here, I don't know, probably in seventh or eighth grade. And so, and, and, and so it would appear that this person simply didn't have the same kind of skill. Then there's the question of genre, then there's the question of background, right? And so the reason this is important is because the, the author, the sacred author, the person that got inspired to do this clearly is participating in the work. It really is John's and God's. Not John's or God's. That makes sense? You guys see what I'm saying? And you see why that would be important? This, this works itself out, like this kind of uh, orientation or disposition works itself out in the whole life of the church. So when we talk about active participation in the liturgy or just active participation in the life of the church, this is a bold thing. So you all made a conscious choice, a decision, to brave the fog and come out here this morning. Good for you. You didn't do that on your own. You might think you did it on your own. You might even want to insist you did because it makes you feel better. But you did. God did something in you that you cooperated with, which is what brought you here today. And, and that means that the whole paradigm of our existence is cooperation with God. Share in God's work, participation in God's life. Like that's, that's the dynamic that's at stake here. I'm not, this is not a comparison contrast, like either with Islam or with Protestants PJ doesn't like. That's not the idea. But it, I think it is helpful to see, kind of, to compare it to tracks, right? Um, that is not, the, that is not uh, a typical Muslim's understanding of what they're doing with Allah. So they're not participating in God's life. They're submitting to God's will, which is absolute and external, but it's not, it's not theirs in the same way. Um, that's just one example. There'd be others we could, we, we could sort of provide. But th this is where the claims that we're making about Scripture have implications far beyond what we're doing with the Scripture, but they also then show us how Scripture is, has been, or could be in the life of the church. Okay? So, so the books of the Bible, both Old and New Testament, are composed uh, by individuals or groups of people over a period of time who are inspired by the Holy Spirit in the writing of a particular text, and then, Barry's question, in the compilation of those texts into one, uh, into one big piece. I'll give you a good example and, and, and show you how God's grace is, is wider than we often give it credit for. So the Book of Wisdom, kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, right near the Psalms, right? So the Book of Wisdom 
is, uh, it is a book basically of sort of proverbs, sayings, aphorisms, right? Um, it's not, there's no narrative. There's no story. Don't go there looking for a story. It isn't there. Um, and there's not even a clear speaker. Um, but what this is, is the collective wisdom of what the Jews picked up while living in exile. Which means, this is very, very important. So there are portions of the book of wisdom, wise sayings. Wise men say when and whole stop digging. I don't know. Um, but, but sayings like that, things you find in a fortune that are in the book of wisdom and are also in ancient Babylonian or ancient Egyptian texts that are older than the book of wisdom. Which means, that, and this isn't a surprise for us, the Jews told us this is what the book was. It was what they learned from the other people. Which means that God first inspired whatever smart pagan was, said this, and then inspired the Jew who recognized, no, that's, that squares with the stuff Moses told us. This, this is a God. And wrote it down. And then the Jewish community recognized, well, this whole text speaks of what God has done. We're going to keep it, and it's going to be part of us now. So, so, so inspiration is not quite the boundary-setting behavior that, that uh, we often think it is. It is true that the Bible is inspired. The church would definitely say this. The Bible is inspired in a way no other text is, even other important texts from the tradition. So the Bible has a, a pride of place that even uh, the sermons of the fathers don't, or other uh, contemporary books that were written, especially in the time of the New Testament, don't. But it is also true, God does continue to work in, and we'd say, like, inspire with a little I, real people. The church, this is where Barry was getting, so the church defines the canon of scripture at several different points. And, and the reason for it is, there's not a need to do it at the beginning. Like we, we imagine, because of kind of how we, because of when we came into the story, we imagine that the fastest, easiest, most efficient way to sort of get this message out is like, all right, so we've got these 60 or 70 books, uh, put it this way, we've got 100 or so books that we have to figure out whether or not they came from God or not, so we're going to sit down, right? we'll form a committee, that's what churches do, right? They form committees. So we're going to form a committee of the smartest people we know and put them in a room and fight over it and then whichever books they decide and then that'll be the Bible. That's not, like, it was a much slower and more organic process than that. By the time we get to Nicaea, which is also what provides us with the creed, by the time we get to Nicaea, there is general agreement about probably 85 or 90% of what we're talking about. There is dispute about uh, around a dozen books. So, like, so Eusebius, who's the great scholar of the time, he tells us there's three categories of books by the time he gets to Nicaea. There's the universally accepted by everybody. There's no question, and that would be most of it, right? So nobody at Nicaea was saying ah, Deuteronomy. I'm not really sure. That's not what was going on. What they were wondering, though, was. The epistle of Barnabas, is that, does, is he close enough or not? And is this really from Barnabas or not? It, spoiler, he, it didn't make the cut. But, but that's the kind of thing that, that, that they're trying to sort out. What kind of criteria did they use? It's very important. So there were two major criteria that they used to determine whether the stuff made the cut. The first one was, 
is it read in the assembly? So is this read in the context of public worship? Which is more or less the way the Jews had determined the same thing a thousand years before, 500 years before. Is this the sort of thing that we can rightly read either at the temple or in the synagogue service on Sabbath? Is it, is it among those writings that are venerated by our people and that the rabbis recognize as, is authentic? The second criteria that they use, though, and this is distinctly Christian for one of the obvious reasons, is, is it apostolic? Does it derive from the apostles or one approved by an apostle, uh, a collaborator or co-worker with an apostle? So, Mark, not an apostle. Mark is the secretary to St. Peter. The, the tradition from the very beginning is that the Gospel of Mark is really a compilation of Peter's preaching. Peter, as far as we can tell, couldn't read or write. So he's not writing his own Gospel. He's got to have somebody else do it for him. See? So, so, so you wind up, uh, so, so you wind up having this uh, sort of dispute over which things are close enough and which things are further away. If you watch the History Channel or something, they're going to tell you that what this is really about is the, uh, Constantine had decided that the only way to keep the empire together was to Christianize the whole thing. The only way to make that work was to make, was to make Jesus God. And so everything that was, everything that seemed to suggest Jesus wasn't God or everything that looked too Gnostic was just cut out. There's, there is no, his, I'm going to be real clear on this. There is no historical reason to think that narrative holds any water at all. There's maybe two dozen scholars in the whole world that hold actual posts that try and propose that. Like it's not, it's not an accepted theory, even by secular historians. Okay, so like that, the, the commonplace thing that we hear is not real. And it's kind of dishonest because when it comes to compilation, this is probably the most important thing I think Catholics and Protestants get wrong about the Bible. The Bible is compiled several hundred years after the books that are in it are written. It's not in order. It's not in order. So the book of Genesis is not the first thing that was written that wound up in the book. The Gospel of Mark, I just talked about, is not the first thing written in the New Testament. How do we know that? Because they talk about the other stuff that's already been written in the New Testament. That's how St. Luke begins his Gospel. Others have sat down to make an account of the life of the Lord. Who? Mark! And probably Matthew, by that point. right? So they knew about this stuff. They knew that the oldest stuff in the book, in the, new, in the last half of the book, were the epistles. The epistles were written first. The epistles are written before anybody sees a need for a gospel because at the very beginning, at least, Paul seems under the impression nobody's going to need to write a book because Jesus is going to show up next week. And, and so there wouldn't be a need to spend the kind of time that it would take to write a biography of something. So... So I'm not going to, I did have, and maybe next week I'll put up on screen, like the, uh, the various lists that have been compiled about proposed authorship dates and, and sort of order. But the, the, the point that I think is important for us here is that, you know, people will sometimes talk about, oh, you know, Schmidt did the whole Bible in a year thing. That's great. There is no great accomplishment simply starting at the front end of this book and working to the back end. This is like saying, I read Julia Child cover to cover. <laughs> Well, did you make me something? 
If you didn't, that's a pretty useless thing to do. <laughs> so, so, so I'm not down on the Bible. Like I'm doing this because I love the Bible. I've given my life to preaching it. But I, but I think it's really, really important to see what is and what isn't. Okay. This affects us when it comes to the book of Revelation for several reasons. The book of Revelation, you'll sometimes hear it said it was the last book accepted. That's overshot. But it was certainly one of the later books. It was disputed for about 150 years. And the source of the dispute largely hinged on this question of apostolicity. Who actually wrote it? And was he close enough to the events for it to carry the authority of an apostle? So who wrote the book of Revelation? John. Which John? Or John's disciple, John. So we know that it's somebody named John, and we know that because he tells us like in the third verse. So if you open the book of Revelation, Revelations 1, what you get is, sorry. Huh? Well, no, it doesn't, it, it, no the, the first words of the book of Revelation are incredible. The revelation of Jesus Christ. That's, in, that's not just to say not, not that, but the, the word revelation most of you are old enough to remember, in old Catholic Bibles, this was actually called the Apocalypse. <coughs> and that's because the Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. So, so uh, whole apocalypsis, so the revelation, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that, that those are the first words. The, the word revelation literally means unveiling. So, there's a moment in the liturgy that's called the Apocalypse, which is when the deacon takes the veil off the chalice. Um, you know, some of the older guys, people like me, are weird and fussy for having restored chalice veils. I did it because it's in the Bible. Father, I did it because I read the Bible. And I don't need to pretend that the 70s were the high point of the life of the church. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servants. John! There you go. That's how we know it's by a John. But which John is the question? And, uh, and, and, and it's an open question, uh, by which I mean, eventually what the fathers decided at uh, Nicaea and later at Orange and then ultimately at Trent was we don't need to be able to say with 100% certitude who the author is of a particular text in order to recognize that it's inspired. It might be useful, it could be helpful, and some instances are much clearer than others. I, Paul, to the Christians at Thessalonica, okay, that one's pretty quick. Uh, or, you know, I sign this with my own hands, I send this by the hand of my servant, okay, so... Some are more obvious than others. But you don't need to know in order to be able to tell that it's inspired. That is going to have to do with content. And that content, the church makes no apologies for having to cohere with the faith. So this is really, really important. I said this on Sunday, and I, there were a couple people that I could tell. Them, oh, is that really true? Okay. If the book of Revelation, we'll say... Uh, is not written till between 80 and 95. That means from 30 
to 80, people had to be doing something. If the Gospel of Mark wasn't written until 50, which is pretty early in terms of the way scholars today did it, but it's not unreasonable. If the, book, if the Gospel of Mark isn't written until 50, how did people convert for the first 20 years? Well, they didn't because of a book. People weren't drawn to Jesus because of a book. They were drawn to Jesus because of other people and because of what they experienced in these other people. I just said the Gospel of Mark is really the preaching of St. Peter. People were drawn to Jesus because Peter would show up in their village and tell the story. And then he might bop around and lay hands on people who got better, and they thought, oh, well, if he can do that, I should probably pay attention to what he's saying. Eventually, we wrote the stuff down to establish consistency in places and, uh, and to be able to help the church cohere together. But the, the, the point of the Bible is what's in the Bible. It's not the Bible itself. That's why, you know, I keep saying, like, get it in you. Get it in your head. Get it in your heart. Get it in your guts. Not just the concepts or the ideas or the stories, but the actual words. Because those actual words have the protection of the Holy Spirit. Because those actual words were put inside that person by God. And when we take those words inside us, we commune with God. It's a kind of verbal communion. The, 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 the words become ours. The word of God becoming the word of the sons of men. So the book of Revelation is written by John. There are two big ideas about this, then, then we'll take our break. Um, the, 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 there, the, there, there are three major proposals about the, the authorship of the book of Revelation. So they are John, the one you're all thinking of. So John the Apostle, John the son of Zebedee, John the brother of James, John who goes up the mountain with Jesus and Peter and James, that John, okay? The kid on Jesus' chest, that's the one, okay? So that's, that's proposal one. Proposal two is a character called John the Elder. Um, the reason for that is because the second and third epistle of St. John um, identify the author as the Elder. He doesn't identify himself as John. He just identifies himself as the Elder. He also doesn't identify himself as John in the Gospel. The only place where John as a name appears in the first person I, John, which is later in the, in the letters to the, um, to the seven churches, is in the book of Revelation. So that's the, that, that's the only place where we're getting it really, really clear. We just don't, by that point, know who the John is. So John the, uh, the Apostle, John the Elder, and then there's a third character um, uh, who's often referred to as John of Papias, or sometimes just Papias, um, which is a place near Patmos, which is where traditionally the book was written. Um, uh, who may or may not be the same as John the Elder. So, so the three basic propositions are, you take the gospel, the three letters, and the book of Revelation, and they were written by one, two, or three people who may have been two people. <laughs> okay, so, so uh, and, and the honest answer to all this is nobody knows. Nobody knows for sure, and they didn't know in the second century, because they were fighting about it in the second century. What is clear, though, and, and here are the kind of arguments that they'll make, which are not crazy, okay? So I talked about how at least portions of the Gospel of John, very high rhetorical style. Somebody with a master's or a doctorate in our language, okay? Very well read, very competent in uh, grammar, uh, very poetic in speech. 
It is unlikely that a fisherman who may have been illiterate would be able to produce spontaneous poetry like that. It's not possible, but it's, it, 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 it's less likely. So one proposal, the proposal favored by Pope Benedict was that the character John the Elder was actually a student or a disciple of John the Apostle. May even have been given the name because of his tutoring kind of position. That would happen. You sort of take on the mantle of your teacher. Um, and, that, and, and that John the Elder um, was the one who like, did the fancy writing. Um, he argues in favor of this largely because in the Gospel of John, uh, you recall sort of the Passion Tide stuff, so um, he's known to the, the beloved disciple, which is how the author of the, of the Gospel refers to himself. The beloved disciple is known to the high priest, known enough to the high priest that when Peter can't get in the gate, he goes and bribes somebody, and they're the ones that let Peter in. So he's able to, to sneak Peter into places. Again, Peter's an illiterate fisherman from literally the same place as John. They, they start the whole journey together. That was Sunday, right? Jesus was walking by the sea and he called them. It's unlikely that Peter was hapless and couldn't do anything, and John was a super genius poet. Like that's, that's probably not the case, right? But if they knew this other guy named John, who was educated and connected enough that he was able to get people in and out of the courts of power, uh, well, that, that kind of character might actually be more likely to like know how to read and write and write pretty things, especially if he was a priest. Yeah. Or a scribe. Or a scribe. Uh, well, the scribes, so the scribes, by definition, right, um, uh, were attached to the priestly class. They weren't all Levites, but they, they all would have been tied in with this. And, and that's the whole bit, is that like the most uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John were clearly laboring people. They should have been able to read and write in a very rudimentary way in order to be able to like, exchange goods and do the necessary work for all the men in the synagogue, which would have been minimal. Think like, this is, a, this is in no way a slam. I'm just trying to contextualize here. But think like competent to be an usher at church, like that kind of, okay? But not competent to be the bishop. See the distance? That's, that, that's all the analogies for. I'm not saying ushers are dumb. <laughs> but but, 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 but that, that's the kind of thing that you're, you're trying to set up. So they're trying to deduce who, where, and how based on the state of the text. And that is, let's be real honest here, that is guesswork in the best of circumstances, and not just for the Bible, but for like all the texts. You try and do this with, uh, with the Gallican Wars. It becomes real unclear who actually wrote most of the history. There was a question back here. I... In uh, Revelation 9, it talks about John, he was on the island of Patmos. Mm -hmm. Would that be like behind door number three, the third gentleman? So, John is on the island of Patmos. We still don't know who that person is. That's the question. Okay. So, so we still don't know whether that's John the Apostle, John, this John the Elder, whoever he is, or this third person. Did you know what Patmos was? <laughs> Yes, we know exactly where Patmos was. You can go there today. Um, it's it's off. It's near Crete, basically. Um, uh, it, so it's an island in the middle of the ocean. It was a penal colony, um, and uh, and the tradition is that John the Apostle, after the death of the Blessed Mother, um, so John the Apostle becomes the bishop of Ephesus, and uh, and and the tradition is that he brings the Blessed Mother with him to Ephesus, um, the Holy House, Loretto, all that business, right? Um, and so he. 
he, um, the, the tradition is very, very clear that John the Apostle is the only one of the apostles who dies a natural death. The others are all martyred. The story is that toward the end of the first century, and this is like this is important because there have been at least three major persecutions of the faith from the death of Jesus to the end of the first century. You're only talking about 70 years, but you have a lot of a lot of problems for the church. And um, some fueled more by the Jews and some fueled more by the Romans. But that John the Apostle is sort of found out, and he's sent to the penal colony. Well, they first try and boil him oil, and then he doesn't die. So they send him to the penal colony on Ephesus. So the like the traditional version of the story is that John is exiled to Patmos, and he has the visions that constitute the book of Revelation while he's there. And he either writes it while he's there, or eventually he gets back to the mainland and he writes it there. So that's, that's I'm calling that the traditional version, because it's the one you're most likely to find like in writings before 1900. But it's important to know that as early as the second century, there were people saying, we don't think that's what happened. And part of the reason for it was, John's body initially winds up back in Ephesus. And so the people in Ephesus are going, we didn't know that he took a two-year vacation. <laughs> so, and I don't have a good explanation for that. I don't think Pope Benedict did either, which is the reason he tried to reconcile it by having two different people. The, the point here is that the early church struggled with this text. So this is the good news for us. The early church struggled with this text, um, struggled with whether it was inspired and struggled with how it should operate in the church, but thought, ultimately thought it was important enough that it be kept. And this is pretty significant. They attached such importance to it that very large chunks of this, very early on, wind up built into the church's own liturgy. So the way that we would pray. So that we pray like the people that we see in the book of Revelation. This is the great insight that Dr. Hahn had and why he wrote the book. So I'm going to read you just a, 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 a little bit. This is the other reason I didn't want to do just a straight up book study of this book. This was written right around the time that Dr. Hahn wrote, wrote Sweet Home. He had not been a Catholic for very long. And it is, it is a book about the Mass and the book of Revelation. It is also the story of one man's individual conversion. And it's a beautiful story. It's worth reading. It's not my story. And I would feel really weird trying to talk about the depth of my conversion from Presbyterianism, because that never happened. So I, so I want to be able to let those portions of the text really go something on. Hear, hear what Dr. Hahn discovered. There I stood, a man incognito, a Protestant minister in plain clothes, slipping into the back of a Catholic chapel in Milwaukee to witness my very first mass. Curiosity had driven me there, and I still didn't feel sure that it was a healthy curiosity. Studying the writings of the earliest Christians, I found countless references to, quote, the liturgy, quote, the Eucharist, quote, the sacrifice. For those first Christians, the Bible, the book that I loved above all else was incomprehensible apart from the event that today's Catholics call Mass. I wanted to understand the early Christians, yet I had no experience of liturgy. So I persuaded myself to go and see as a sort of academic exercise, but vowing all along that I would neither kneel nor partake in their idolatry. 
I took my seat in the shadows in a pew at the very back of the basement chapel. Before me were a goodly number of worshipers, men and women of all ages. Their genuflections impressed me, as did their apparent concentration in prayer. Then a bell rang, and they all stood as the priest emerged from a door beside the altar. Unsure of myself, I remained seated. For years, as an evangelical Calvinist, I had been trained to believe that the Mass was the ultimate sacrilege a human could commit. The Mass, I had been taught, was a ritual that purported to re-sacrifice Jesus Christ. So I would remain an observer. I would stay seated with my Bible open beside me. As the Mass moved on, however, something hit me. The Bible wasn't just beside me. It was before me. In the words of the Mass. One line from Isaiah, another from Psalms, another from Paul. The experience was overwhelming. I wanted to stop everything and shout, Hey, I can explain what's happening here from Scripture. This is great. Yet still, I remained, I maintained my observer status. I remained on the sidelines until I heard the priest pronounce the words of consecration. This is my body, this is my blood. And then I felt all my doctrine away. As I saw the priest raise the large white host, I felt a prayer surge from my heart and whisper, My Lord and my God. Also, scripture. I was what you might call a basket case from that point on. I couldn't imagine a greater excitement than what those words had worked on me. Yet the experience was intensified just a moment later when I heard the congregation recite, Lamb of God, Lamb of God, Lamb of God. And then the priest responded, This is the Lamb of God. As he raised the host. In less than a minute, that phrase, Lamb of God, had rung out four times. From long years of studying the Bible, I immediately knew where I was. I was in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is called the Lamb no less than 28 times in 22 chapters. I was at the marriage feast that John had described at the end of that very last book of the Bible. I was sitting before the throne of heaven, where Jesus is hailed forever as the Lamb. I wasn't ready for this stuff. So let's break um, ten, and then um, and then we'll connect this to mass and tee us up for next week. Fair enough. <laughs> what you got, Mister?
Yourself? Better in a couple hours? Yeah. Yes. All the faith in the world, brother. This little part of this always kind of throws me, like one of those widely read, some of the codices, just in there. I hear you. What you thinking? It's interesting that there are saints who, saints right. of the church who would argue for an against. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. still, even after. One of the things that I see great consolation, great consolation is, is that um, during the, uh, during the Avignon Papacy, Monday, Catherine of Siena, who are both saints, back different posts. So it's impossible to be in material error about something even really important, like who's actually in charge, and still be genuinely holy. Yeah. So I hope there's a shot for me. Yeah. Like to know who writes the introduction to this? Because that explains the whole thing. Explains the whole thing. If you don't read the introduction, you get lost. So there's usually, so the answer to that is it's going to be different from Bible to Bible. But usually in the front matter, there's going to be a listing of the people that were responsible for the compilation of this particular text. So, um, I, mean, I didn't realize when they said seven horns, that means power. Powers. Mm -hmm. you know. The, the, uh, 
So in here, they're going to tell you which scholars were responsible for which parts. Oh, okay. And that's and and that largely is going to tell you who did. Now it's it's not going to be quite as even as like footnote seven in the book. Right. Is, so it's not going to be that. Right. But, but in general, like when you put together whole Bibles like this, um, individual scholars take chunks. Yeah. So very seldom is one translated and compiled by just one person. Occasionally that happens. Yeah. But for the most part, they're committees, they're groups of people. And so like one person does the first five books, right. and somebody else does half the historical, and the other half, or that kind of thing. And then those are the people that write the commentary and the, and the yeah. instruments. But I'm with you. The, the, it would be very hard to do any of this without, yeah. without the introductory guy. Never thought to look to see. I still haven't actually. Do, do, does each like society or community puts them together? Like, they have like a, their own separate impromptor, or is it is that the right word? Impromptor. Yeah. Imprimatur. Um, uh, it depends. Uh, it, 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 it depends in large measure on who's responsible for it. So the imprimatur typically comes from the bishop of the place where the thing is actually published. Okay. So I might be. Um, well, like, and that's, like, I've gotten imprimaturs from probably half a dozen bishops, but while living in Des Moines, because whatever I was writing was being published someplace uh, else. okay. You see what I'm saying? So, like, so, like, uh, and, and then ironically, uh, Father Trevor and I are the senses here in Des Moines, and so, so, so anybody getting something published in Des Moines is actually going to be... But, but you see how that's working? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sort of a double blind. So that uh, this ain't getting published that. here unless it follows my... Uh, <laughs> you're not, you're not entirely right. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm with you, man. But I'm like, you want to go, I've been doing it for some time. I don't want to I know there's some people who have to leave right at 11.30. I'm going to try and not go much over. But I wanted to, um, I wanted to at least try and, and, and bring this all together. So, um, uh, so I, 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 I'm not going to give you like a whole introduction to the Mass, but I want to speak specifically to the role of Scripture in the Mass. Okay? 
So there are a couple things I just want us to hear. This is from, this is all coming from the general instruction of the Roman Missal, which is like the rule book at the front of the Missal that tells the priest how to celebrate Mass. Um, nine times out of ten, when you see priests doing strange things at Mass that don't look churchy, look sort of weird, it's because he never read this. Um, old seminary professor there being slightly jabby. All right, so when the sacred scriptures are read in the church, so when the Bible is read in the church, God himself speaks to his people. Actually, I'm going to pause there for a minute. Why does it say sacred scripture rather than Bible? Think about this for a sec. Why in the church, like when we're talking about stuff that happens physically in church, why would we talk about the scriptures, especially in the plural like that, rather than the Bible in the singular? So it's always multiple, right? Like that's the, the, the first bit. So the Bible is the whole thing. The scriptures, plural, are the things that make up the Bible. That's true. And obviously we're not sitting down and reading the whole book at church some Sunday, so that also is true. It's also the case that the church has really never had something like this as a book that's in use in worship. Like, there isn't just a Bible, again, largely because of size. Because if you were doing this on skin in the ancient world, you'd have to carry it like this or something, right? So the scriptures are proclaimed from multiple portions in the text and from multiple books. So in the ordinary course of things, the, 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 the book that we read the scripture lessons from in, uh, in the Mass is called the Lectionary, which literally just means reading book, the book of readings. The gospel book is the one that we process around with, right? Um, and, and the lectionary really should not be processed around with. It. It's probably not the word sin or something, but like the, the idea is that we process with the gospel book because it's got pride of place in the church because those are the words of the word. Those are the words that Jesus himself spoke. So they've got a, a kind of preeminence and they're, and they're venerated just as the altar is. With a kiss, that's on purpose. Um, and so, 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 so the, their scriptures or writings, that's what scripture means, it's just the writings. They're writings from more than one book, more than one place, and oftentimes more than one physical location in the church. All right, so the sacred scriptures, when they are read in the church, when the sacred scriptures are read in the church, God himself speaks to his people, and Christ, present in his word, proclaims the gospel. When a deacon is ordained... He's not given a Bible. He's given the book of the Gospels. And that's the reason he's the one that then runs around with it. <laughs> it's, 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 it is, in a certain sense, his book. Not that it's not everybody else's, too. But he has a kind of stewardship of the book, especially in the context of the assembly. Therefore, the readings of the word of God are to be listened to reverently by everyone, for they are an element of the greatest importance in the liturgy. And although in the readings from sacred scripture the word of God is addressed to all the people of whatever era and is understandable to them, a fuller understanding and a greater efficaciousness of the word is nevertheless fostered by a living commentary on the word, that is, by the homily, as a part of the liturgical action. So there's two parts of that that are really, really important. The first one is that... The readings proclaimed, so what we think of as, pardon me, as first reading, responsorial psalm, second reading, and gospel, those readings proclaimed 
have a kind of pride of place for the Bible in the liturgy because they're directed to the people. This is very, very significant because even, um, even sort of uh, uh, spatially, um, the, the texts of the scripture are addressed to the people. The prayers of the Mass are addressed to God. See the difference here? So there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of call and response dynamic at work here. And that call and response dynamic is both macro, in the sense that the scripture readings are addressed to the people, and then the people's prayers are addressed to God. It's also the micro. So I mentioned this in at least one of the, the Masses on the weekend, before the album is better refined. Um, uh, so the first reading gets so for almost all of church history, for almost all of the churches, including most Protestants, um, you, you basically had an epistle and a gospel with maybe a song in the middle. But, but like that, and you could go to like most traditional Episcopal churches today, that's still kind of what you get. At the time of the council, there was this desire to recover, especially large portions of the Old Testament people weren't hearing. One of the big problems with the lectionary before Vatican II was that, so today... If you don't have a feast, today happens to be a feast, but in 2023, if you don't have a feast, the prayers of the Mass stay the same all week. So you, you use the Sunday, the preceding Sunday, and those are the prayers that carry into the week. Unless there's some compelling reason to not do it, but like that's the default. Before Vatican II, the readings stayed the same all week. So you would hear the same readings six or seven times if you were coming to daily Mass. And, and they said, well, that, we can probably organize this better than that. That was not true for Advent, Lent, or Christmas, Easter. Those had proper readings that were already assigned to the particular days attached there because they're special seasons. But for what we would think of today as ordinary time, it, you, you got a lot of the same thing. And then there weren't particular readings for particular saints, at least for the most part, a handful, like real high ones did. But you had these commons. So any virgin martyr, same reading, same prayers. Any, uh, any non-virgin martyr, any, any like guy martyr, same, same reading, same prayers. Um, any, uh, a, a, any bishop and doctor, same reading, same prayers. Okay, so, so the church wanted to give us more variety, so it kind of shook it up that The second thing that's important to hear is that, or to see there, right, is that, so the first reading, whether it's from the Old or the New Testament, directed to the people, and then the responsorial psalm is not responsorial because of the way that we say it. It feels that way because in English, we think response is back. And so I said, monkey see, monkey do. I will walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. I will walk in the presence of the Lord in the land of the living. That's what we think is going on. That's not what is, mean, what is meant by responsorial. It's in response to the reading. So that the psalm is selected, and this is really, really important. You'll watch for this on Sunday. You'll see what I mean. The first reading and the psalm are always tied together. They were selected on purpose together. And usually those two are tied to the gospel. The second reading is more or less totally random. It's not random in the sense that in ordinary time, we basically read straight through. So it's... it's it, it, where you stop last week is where you start the next week. But it's not assigned related to the other readings. Um, that's probably a mistake, which is a different conversation. But the thing that I want you to see is that God speaks, 
we respond. We respond with God's own words. So that again, the word of God become the words of men. God speaks again, second reading. And the people respond. What, what, how, how do we respond? What happens between the second reading and the gospel? We sing it. Alleluia. Where'd that word come from? The Bible. <laughs> it's a Bible word. It's all over the psalmody, right? It's all over the psalms, and it's one of the more common words in the book of Revelation. You're going to see a lot of alleluias coming. That's why we're doing it before we get to the hard way. Um, uh, there's a lot of alleluias coming. Okay, so, so, so we respond to God's word with God's word become our word. And that's the dynamic at play throughout the thing, right? Um, the, the, uh, this is a newer part of the Mass, but they, they at least follow the same pattern. Uh, the priest, right, consecrates the elements. This is my body given for you. This is the chalice of my blood. And he immediately falls down in adoration, recognizing the presence of the Lord now on the altar. And when he rises, he calls out, like in astonishment, the mystery of faith. And we respond with one of three choices, right? But all three of those choices are drawn right from St. Paul. <laughs> the word of God becoming the words of men. Responding to the presence of the word in the flesh with the word in our own mouth. The other thing I want you to hear, though, is the way that they talked about the homily. People, um, I, don't, I don't think this is going to be a great surprise to any of you. Like, people like my homilies. I get a lot of compliments on my homilies. That's a real thing. I don't actually think I'm a better public speaker than most of the other guys in town. I really don't. I do think I understand the way the homily works better than a number of other guys. Because the homily here, listen again to the way that the church describes this here. Living commentary on the word. Living commentary on the word as part of the liturgical action. So the reason Catholic homilies, and to a certain degree this is true of other liturgical churches too, but the reason a homily, what makes a homily distinct from a sermon or Bible talk or commentary or something like that, what makes a homily at Mass different than like a, a, a sort of old school Protestant Bible study is that it's part of the ritual action, part of the liturgical action. The homily, this was an important reform at Vatican II. So before the council, the little thing that I wear on my left arm that most of the other guys don't, that's called a maniple. Um, and the maniple's only ever worn at Mass. It's not a vestment the priest wears apart from Mass. In the old days, what the priests were instructed to do was when they, when they stood to, 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 re, to give their homily, they were to take that off. If they were able, they were actually supposed to take their chasuble off, the big thing that goes over the top. Because the idea was... We interrupt this regularly scheduled liturgy to give you some commentary on what I just read. <laughs> and we realized that was not an effective way to do this. And we looked back at the church fathers and realized that wasn't the way that they had done it. That the homily is itself integrated into the liturgical action. So if what, if, if what you think you're doing is interrupting the thing you're already doing to give your own personal opinions about whatever somebody else just read, then... That is unlikely, unless the guy is like a rock star of a speaker. That's not going to move anybody to nothing. It, it, it's not designed to. <laughs> like, but, like he's designed himself out of effectiveness. Whereas if he thinks what he's doing is providing a living commentary, so not 
Well, you know, the reason this is written this way is because once upon a time, this is how people washed their dishes. Not, not going to move to conversion, right? If instead what he thinks he's doing is providing living commentary, offering whatever historical context is helpful, fair enough, but then tying that not only to the events of people's lives today, but to the ritual action that we're in the middle of, then you immediately have something to do. Like, immediately. Like, as soon as we stand for the creed, you have a job to do. And for the whole rest of the Mass, you have a job to do. So that your head and your heart wind up bound up in this thing as much as anything else. The other thing that I want you to hear about, uh, about the Scripture in the Mass is that, and I, I mentioned this on Sunday, and I, I, I want to be very careful how I say this, because it could sound more grumpy or like critical than I intended to. So, so the responsorial psalm is specifically called responsorial to distinguish it from the other psalms that appear in the liturgy. And the default setting for music in the liturgy is that every place where we imagine hymns, there's actually a psalm being sung. In history, like long, long history, the psalms were set to what are called psalm tones, or like very short musical phrases, which is, well, like what we do with the Alleluia. Alleluia, Alleluia. Okay, and we all know that too, right? Okay, that's a tone. Bum, 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 and you repeat that. Some of those are hard, and for a long time, nobody knew them, and so, so, so the desire was to, um, uh, I'm aware, hold on. Sorry. Um, Mark, could you head on over to the office just so that they know that we're here and we're on our way? Thank you. Um, so, uh, so, so, the, so what they did was right, right, right after that, I think you like in 65, they granted permission for hymns to begin to replace those psalms. But interestingly, in the early days, the priest was still supposed to be reciting the psalms under his breath. You'll notice, and this is not because I think I'm doing things right and I think everybody else is doing wrong. I do this for my own kind of piety and, and personal headspace. I don't typically sing the entrance hymn along with the people. And it's not because I don't like the hymn. It's not a commentary on the choir or anything like that. What I'm doing while they're singing the hymn is I'm reciting Psalm 43, which is what's called for as the priest goes to the altar. Anybody want to guess how Psalm 43 begins? I will go to the altar of God. <laughs> it's very original. It's the, it's the prayer that the Jewish priest prayed before going up to the altar in the temple, and it's the prayer that Christian priests for most of history have prayed as they, as, as they prepare for Mass. You could argue about exactly which moment is right. That's not the point here. But the reason I want you to see it is because the Psalms specifically, like of all the scripture, the Psalms specifically, which is basically a Jewish hymnal tucked in the middle of the Old Testament, are the natural prayer of the church. The divine office, the prayers that, that priests and religious are obliged to say every day, are composed almost entirely of the Psalms. And, and, and the bits that aren't Psalms are hymns from uh, from. Uh, from the, especially the New Testament, a few from the Old, but, but especially the New Testament. So that the natural place for the scripture in the life of the church, the place where the, the Bible is most at home, is on the mouths of her people. Not in their heads. I mean, it needs to get in their head before it comes out of your mouth. I understand that piece. But, but, but like, it's meant to live here 
and to, and to come back out of you. Cindy, you were singing a song uh, during the break. What was it? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. Mm -hmm. Stands alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. <laughs> classical Protestant hymn. The other one that we probably all know, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now here's the problem, and please do not hear harshness here. They're not my truth. I don't know that Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so. I know that Jesus loves me because somebody told me. And that's how the Bible actually presents it. So nobody in the Acts of the Apostles, nobody in the Acts of the Apostles comes to faith in Jesus because they read the Bible. The closest you get is the eunuch who's reading the Bible and can't understand it and so has to turn to Philip and say, what does this mean? It's Philip's testimony that causes him to be baptized. It's not randomly reading Isaiah. The Bible, do, do the one you said again, Cindy. The I-B-L-E. The, the book for me. It stands alone on the word of God. It stands alone on the word of God. Now, this is closer. This comes very, very close. Because the word of God, this is the, this is the point to end on. This is the word of God written down. But we only know it because of the word of God in the flesh. So the word of God the Word of God, capital T, capital W, all caps all around, is the person of Jesus. Which is why all that stuff I said at the beginning about authorship is so important. Jesus is truly divine and truly human, truly God and truly a man. Truly inspired by God's Holy Spirit. No question, not fitting. Truly, truly the words of the individual human authors who put it down. And that's a better proposition, not a worse one, than a magic book that fell out of the sky. Because this allows me to share in it, to participate in it. It means there's a possibility God might actually do something with me like he did with the people in the book. And that's the reason in those fancy family Bibles, the kind that sit on the shelf, you've got the sacramental register. Those are the moments, I mean, there are undoubtedly other moments, but those are the moments where absolutely, but those, that's like chapter 6,722 of the book of Revelation is your baptism, your wedding, your kid's first communion. Like these are the moments that God absolutely reached out and did something in your life. And we can be as sure of it as we can of the scripture themselves. All right, we're gonna, we're gonna stop there. Bring your Bibles next week. And all I want you to do, like if you want homework, look at the first two chapters of Revelation which are not very long. But look at the first two chapters of Revelation, come with questions, and we'll dive straight in. All right? Thank you. 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 Thank you.